All right, go ahead and open up your Bibles to 1 John. 1 John, we are continuing our series in the letters of John. Um, series is basic Christianity, and as we've kind of come to, to probably realize at this point, when we call it basic Christianity by looking at uh, the letters of 1 John, basic Christianity is actually anything but basic. Um, it's actually pretty radical um, when we really get down into it. Um, and today we're going to be looking at the subject of abiding in Christ. And we're going to cover uh, the end of chapter 2 going into the beginning of chapter 3. And, and we're going to be looking at this um, topic of abiding in Christ. Um, in 1517... Uh, Martin Luther nailed the 95 Theses to the chapel door at Wittenberg in Germany. And the 95 Theses, at that point, he knew um, potentially could lead to the end of his life. Um, he knew that he could uh, potentially lose his life for uh, making some pretty bold claims. And he's not the only one. I mean, we see all throughout, um, really, history, uh, men and women of the faith standing up for um, the beauties of Scripture um, to have their lives um, lost, really. Um, and, and we could stand here for hours upon hours and go through story after story of uh, men and women who have went before us um, risking everything um, for the, the truths of God's Word. And so... With that in mind, I want to ask a series of questions. Um, how different would your life look, or how different would you live if you had absolutely no fear? If you weren't afraid of what people would think, if you weren't afraid of losing anything, if you weren't afraid of any possible opposition, if you had complete confidence to do what God was calling you to do. Now, as you think about that, and you think about what could be different in your life, or what possibly should be different in your life, what if you were actually given 100% confidence to live for Christ? To completely do everything he's called you to do. If you knew 100% confidently that you could do whatever he called you to do, would you do it? Now, hopefully you answered that yes. Now, what if I told you that you have that 100% confidence? Does it make us want to backtrack on our answers? Does it make us want to second guess our answers? Or does it give us the assurance of knowing, let's do this, right? So what changes? See, the person who has confessed their sin to Christ and they have believed and trusted that Jesus has forgiven them of that sin has complete confidence to do what he has called us to do, 
right? Remember, Ephesians 2, for it is by grace we have been saved through faith, that not of ourselves, it is the free gift of God, so that none of us can boast. And then he follows that up immediately in verse 10 with, for we are his workmanship, created by him for good works, which he has prepared beforehand, beforehand so that we may walk in them. So we're saved by God for God to do the work of God, and he has already prepared that work and set us apart to do it. And so we have full confidence in knowing that Jesus alone saves, and that so we should completely be abiding in him and walking in his ways. And the assurance comes in knowing that there is nothing that can happen to us that is going to take us away from Christ if we're faithfully walking in step with him. What I mean by that is if you boldly proclaim the good news of Jesus, you might be hated, and you might even potentially lose your job, or family, or friends, or even your life, but you will never lose Jesus, because you never had a hold of him. He has a hold of us, right? And that's the confidence and assurance that we have. And so the main idea of the text we're going to be in today is this. That the one who abides in Jesus does not continue in sin, but strives for holiness. Because his confidence is in the work of Jesus. Right? If you will, let's stand together. And I want to read our text starting in 1 John chapter 2, verse 28. And we'll read through verse 10 of chapter 3. And then I want to pray for us and pray for our time together. And then we will work through this text together. Chapter 2, starting in verse 28. And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But, what we, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Everyone who makes the practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. And no one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous, as he is righteous. But whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God, and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, 
nor is the one who does not love his brother. Let's pray. Father, uh, we come this morning again by your grace and for your glory. We ask that you would bless the reading of your word. We could sit here this morning and just list of all the ways that you have been so very good to us. And at the top of that list will be the gift of Jesus as payment for sin. And likely second on that list, Father, is the gift of your word to us. To be able to hear from you. To be intimate with you in the reading and hearing of your word. We believe here, God, that your word is foundational for all that we say and do. And so this morning as we begin to work through this text, may it just speak deeply into every one of our hearts. So that we may come face to face with the reality of both who Jesus is and what Jesus is about. That Jesus is very God of very God and that he is holy, holy, holy. And as we stand in front of his holiness, we realize how far away in sin we truly are. And in seeing that, Father, may we also see the great love with which you have loved us, that we should be called the children of God if we confess that Jesus is Lord and we believe in our heart that you raised him from the dead and that he has done so to save us. And may we bask in that graciousness. And for those that, that don't see that connection this morning, who haven't confessed Jesus as Lord, I pray, God, that you would awaken them to the truths of who Christ is and what Christ does. That even in the depths of their darkest sin, they can rejoice in Jesus as Savior. That if they confess their sin, He, you are faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So may we not push back against your word this morning, but may we be receptive of it. And may we all be gradually changed more and more into the likeness of Jesus, so that we can live for your glory in every moment of every day of our lives. May we approach your word with humility, and in all of who you are. So again, we ask you to bless the reading of your word this morning. And we ask your spirit to speak to us through the powerful word that you have given. God, I pray a little selfishly for myself this morning as my allergies are going crazy that you just allow me to speak clearly the words that you would have me to speak that it would all be for your glory and your glory alone 
In Jesus' wonderful name we pray. Amen. You can go ahead and be seated. So again, the one who abides in Jesus does not continue in sin, but strives for holiness because his confidence is in the work of Jesus. And as we work through this passage this morning, the very first point that we will come to see is that our confidence is in Christ. So again, verses 28 and 29 of chapter 2, And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears we may have confidence, and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. And he begins, and now. So, What John has been doing in this letter so far towards the church has been reminding them of Jesus' deity. He is writing against the attack of false teachers who are um, writing that Jesus is not the Son of God, that he's not deity. Um, And we're not going to spend a ton of time in that because we've been hounding on that for the last several weeks. But again, he is reminding them of the deity of Jesus, that Jesus is not just a man, but he is very God, a very God. And he is encouraging them, because of that truth, to walk in the light of who Jesus is and to walk in love as Jesus loves. And he is doing so, again, to combat the false teachers that are arising in their area. And so ultimately his hope is for them to abide in Christ. And see, Christians have full confidence in Jesus because of who he is. And we have full confidence because of what he does in coming and paying the penalty for our sin. And so he should be the highest affection in our lives because of all the things in our lives, our, our spouses, our children, our jobs, our families, our friends, even our church, the thing that should be the highlight of our affection is Jesus because as good as all of those other things are and can be, none of them will eclipse the greatness of Jesus and what he has done for us. So he is to be the highlight of our lives. That is to say, our relationship with Jesus is or should be the most important thing in our life. This evening, we will gather again to celebrate the wedding of Cam and Rachel. And even in the beauty of that, none of their, their love for each other can only be um, produced out of their love for Christ. If they are to love and cherish each other greatly, they have to love Christ more. Um, I've heard it said that the, the greatest gift a husband can give his wife and a wife or husband is to love Jesus more than they do their spouse. Because out of the overflow of their love for Christ, they will be able to love well. And so Jesus for us is the highest of highs. He is our prize because he has been so very good. Now again, why is John stressing this? He's stressing this because to have confidence in Christ gives us confidence to live the life he has called. But as you see in these verses, he's also saying our confidence in Christ should be there for his coming or if he calls us home 
first. So again, and now little children abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. Our confidence comes in Christ and our confidence in Christ then propels us as Christians to live in faith, to live in such a way that would bring honor and glory to him. Hebrews 11.1 1 says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the confidence of things not seen. We see a lot of teaching that faith is visible, but faith is in knowing that Jesus is who he says he is and that he will return just as he says he will return. And when he does all things will be made new. And so our confidence, again, is in Jesus. And so as his people, we then press on in both the good times and the bad, living the life he has called us to live because our hope is in him and the promise of his return. Our hope is, in, is not in how good we can live or how many boxes we can check or how many times we can attend church or how much we can volunteer or how much we can give or how much we can serve. Ultimately, our hope is in the work that Christ has done for us. And that should lead us and propel us to live a life that has no shame. No shame in declaring that Jesus is my all in all. Why? Because our sin has been forgiven and we are covered in grace and we then are set free to live a life for the glory of God above all things. So our confidence is in Jesus and his righteousness. In 2 Corinthians 5, we see that in Jesus' death, he takes our sin and he replaces it with his righteousness. He takes our sin upon him, and in doing so, God destroys our sin by destroying the Son. And in the midst of that, what theologians call the great exchange, he then imputes his righteousness to us. So he exchanges the sin of his people for the righteousness of Christ, and we receive his Righteousness. So our confidence in Jesus' righteousness then reassures us that our righteousness comes from him alone. If we ever try to live on our own merit, our own basis, all we're going to do is eventually wind up just unhappy or broken or confused. Because at the end of the day, there is none good, no, not one except for Jesus. And the best we have to offer will ultimately fail. So if we try to outserve, if we try to outlive or outgive, we will ultimately be upset because there's always going to be someone who does it better than we do. And we're ultimately going to fall away and we're ultimately going to fail, which is why we must abide in Jesus and Jesus Alone. Listen to this quote from uh, Simon Kistemacher in commenting on this text. He said, God who is righteous brings forth sons and daughters who reflect his righteousness in their daily lives. To be righteous is the equivalent of being holy. It implies doing the will of God, obeying his commands and loving him and one's neighbor. He's, in short, he says, righteous is a term that stands for being free from sin. So when we confess our sins 
to Christ and he saves us from our sins. We are no longer seen as sinners, but we are seen as righteous. And the righteous then live surrendered to Jesus. They do right. And it's only possible because our confidence is in Christ. Now, does that mean we're going to be perfect? Absolutely not. We're going to fail. Even in our pursuit of holiness, we're going to fail. But the point is, is are we resting in Jesus? Are we abiding in Jesus? Do our lives reflect our confidence in him? In Luke 17 and 18, you see um, a couple uh, parables that kind of work together. There's um, a parable where Jesus is talking about the coming of the kingdom, and he's talking about him um, coming, and and then he flows into a parable um, about um, the the woman who basically just has no confidence, right? Um, She's a persistent widow. Um, and she is face to face with an unrighteous judge. And he goes throughout that parable um, only to come to the end, and at the end what we see is um, a comment that simply says, when Jesus returns, will he find faith amongst the people? And that's a big question. So, And, and it's really a, a question that speaks to our lives as well. When Christ returns, if he were to return at this moment, would he find faith amongst the people? Would he find a people who are abiding in him? Would he find a people who are fully confident in his word? Would he find a people who have surrendered their lives to his will and his calling? Or would he find a people who are bucking against walking in righteousness? See, the confidence we have in Christ is only made possible because of the love of the Father. Chapter 3, verse 1. So see what kind of the love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, because we shall see Him as He is. And everyone who thus hopes in Him purifies himself as He is so further motive to trust in Christ fully to have complete confidence in Jesus as we're reminded of the love of the Father so again he and and just try to maybe imagine yourself in the shoes of this church hearing this letter from their pastor who loves them greatly and he's warning them and he's Assuring them all to come to this point, he says, Now see what kind of the love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. He wants them to remember the Lord's goodness. He wants them to reflect on their confidence in Christ and not themselves. He wants them to rest in the work of Jesus. He says, See the love. See the love despite who we are, despite our sin, 
despite our brokenness, despite our failures, despite our inconsistencies, despite who we are. He loves us. And he calls us the children of God. And his love is rest and based entirely on the work of Jesus. His love is not conditional on how we love back. His love is not conditional on how we live. He loves us with, like the Jesus Storybook Bible says, a never stopping, never ending, never giving up, always and forever kind of love. It never rests. And that's the confidence that we have in His love for us, not in our love for Him. And He puts that love on display for us in the work of Jesus. There's an old hymn, and it's kind of been reworked um, um, in the last several years, and it's called, Oh, the Deep, Deep Love of Jesus. And I want to re- just read that to you. Oh, the Deep, Deep Love of Jesus. Vast, unmeasured, boundless, free. Rolling as a mighty ocean in its fullness over me. Underneath me, all around me, is the current of your love. Leading onward, leading homeward to your glorious rest above. Oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus. Tis heaven of heavens to me. And it lifts me up to glory, for it lifts me up to thee. Oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus, spread his praise from shore to shore. How he loves us, ever loves us, changes never, nevermore. The love of Jesus is not dependent on our love for him. He loves us with a beautiful love, a truly unconditional love. Love. And what joy that should give us as the people of God. Because notice, he, he says, see what kind of the love the Father, I've messed it up every time I've read it. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And notice what happens next. He says, and so we are. So not again that we have only been loved by the Father, but yet that He calls us His own. We are His. We've been bought with a price. So again, if you have trusted Jesus for salvation, then He is your identity. It's not, not, again, it's not your spouse, it's not your children, it's not your job. None of those things are your identity, your faults, your failures, your wins, your losses. None of those things are your identity. Our identity is that we have been called the children of God. And he says, so we are. Therefore, we've been put on a path to live differently. To live a life set apart. Why? Because we're no longer children of rebellion. We're no longer slaves to sin. We're no longer what John just referred to in the verses earlier as referring to those who reject Christ as anti-Christ. But we have been loved by the Father and He has called us His own. And so we are. And he goes on, he says, The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. We're not 
recognized by the world because of something that is very different about us. That is, our, our lives are to be reflecting Jesus. So in a degree, we should be unrecognizable. Holy set apart. And again, living for him in this manner is not an easy thing to do. It's, it's something that is going to probably cause persecution. It's going to cause some pain. It's going to cause some rejection. But we will never be rejected by him. He never leaves us. He never forsakes us. We are his. And our confidence is in the fact that he loves us, not that we're loving him. And because he has loved us with a perfect love, he will never remove that love. There is nothing that can snatch us out of his hand. And so he says in verse 2, Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when it appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. So, beloved, because we have been loved by God, we are his. See the definitiveness there. We have been loved by God, and so we are his. If God loves us, then he calls us his own. We are His. And so our lives should reflect His love for us. Again, will we fail? Absolutely. We're not perfect. But here's the point. Here's the kicker. That because of Jesus' blood, that because of Jesus' righteousness, we'll see perfection. Not in this life. But we will be perfected at either his return or if he calls us home first. When we are glorified and we see him as he is. I want you to just kind of think about that. I have a family member who is uh, about to die. Um, and I'm pretty sure he doesn't know the Lord. And, and he has two young children. And I'm, all I could think is, like, what possibly could be going on in his mind right now? The turmoil. Um, and then I try to imagine someone in that same predicament, but who actually trusts fully in Jesus. And to be able to say, even like Paul said, for me to live is Christ, but to die is gain. I'm ready. And the, the freedom of knowing that there is more than this life. And the promise of what we're reading right here in just these verses, to see what kind of the love of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. And then to be able to just think of that day, of either his return or calling us home, whichever. And we stand before the holiness of God. What a day that will be when my Jesus I shall see. The fullness of Jesus made sure before us. 
don't know if you think of heaven often, but to be able to stand before the majestic King of Kings, arrayed in all of his splendor and majesty and glory, and to know that we have been loved by the Father and we're called his children, and that the fight has been worth it, that the race has been won, and to see him as he is. That should give us confidence enough there. And so he continues in his letter. So where, again, does this confidence come from? Verse 3, And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Our hope in him is in the work he has done for us and the promise of his return. And just, again, reflecting on these truths. Again, the the truths that Jesus is who he says he is, right? We mentioned it a few weeks ago that C.S. Lewis said Jesus could be basically one of four things. He could be a liar, meaning that he just spoke irrationally, made up this great story to gain fame and fortune on earth. He could be a lunatic, in, in, in which place he actually believed the things he was saying, but they were not actually true. That he could, um, what was the other one, the liar, a lunatic. Oh man, I know that one. It's the other one. Okay, we'll just skip to the fourth one. Or he could be a legend. No, a legend. Yeah, yeah, you're right. You're right. It was legend. Yeah, I was confusing myself. Legend, in which all of this is just made up after the fact so that we could revere someone who actually has no ground to stand on or he actually is Lord. And that's where we land, believing that he is Lord, that he has not only made claims that he is the Son of God, but that he actually is the Son of God and that his death was very much in our place for our sins. And that's where our confidence is. And as we rest in those truths that he is who he says he is, then our desire should be to live lives that give him glory, right? That's why Paul in Romans 12 writes this. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. So he's writing this appeal to the church, and he's, I appeal to you then, present your bodies as a living sacrifice. That will be holy and acceptable to God. Why? It's your spiritual worship. So worship is not this 90 minutes where we gather on Sunday morning. Worship is every moment of every day of our lives. Is our worship reflecting the glories of God? And he goes on, he says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. So the the good news of the gospel, the preaching of the gospel, the reading of your word, let that transform you. So that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. 
So we rest in who Jesus is, and as we rest in who Jesus is, we are then pushed out to go and proclaim the goodness to the ends of the earth. Not being conformed to the patterns of this world, but being transformed by the goodness and the glories of the gospel. Why? Because it's our spiritual worship. And it's not a duty, it's delight. Again, see what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. And so we live to make Him famous. We live so that His glories could be proclaimed to the very ends of the earth. But even in the midst of that, we still have the battle of sin. Look at verse 4 as we move on to the nature of sin. But everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. And no one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or has known him. We know, according to Romans 3, that we're all sinners, every one of us. There is no way to be born without sin unless you're Jesus. So every other person ever lived is a sinner. It's who we are. We are by nature children of wrath. Ephesians 2, like the rest of mankind. And that part of what sin does is it deceives us. It makes us think that the bad things are good. It makes us think that the good things are not necessary. And so a question is, is what then is sin? If we're all sinners and we know that sin deceives, what is sin? It's simply breaking the standard of God's character and God's law. Right? So on one side you have a holy God and the other side you have everything else and everyone else. And if it does not meet that holy standard of God, it's sin. Sin. And we have this tendency to completely downplay sin because it's just what sin does is it deceives us to not think it's that serious. But sin is just our natural proclivity. That's just what we're gravitating towards. That's just who we are. But the Christian who has confessed sin to Jesus and he believes Jesus to forgive of sin will not, no cannot, continue to live in sin without repentance. Again, are we, gonna, are we perfect? No. Will we be perfect? Not in this life. But should we be repentant? Absolutely. When I was going to Bruton Parker, they had a, a small bulletin board with a bunch of quotes posted on it. And very seldomly did they change those. They just kind of left them there. And so as I was there, I just kept coming face to face with the same one over and over and over again. I couldn't remember the real long ones because I'm not that smart. But there was one. It was just a little one-liner that just stuck with me. And it still does. And it's from Martin Luther. It says, the truest repentance is to do so no more. Now think about that, right? If, if we know we sin and we're called to confess that sin, and we know that we can't be perfect... And yet we're, we're trying to repent of that sin. What, what is he actually saying? Because he's saying that if we repent, 
then we should not continue in that sin. But we also know that because of who we are and our natural tendencies, we'll continue to make the same mistakes. So it's not about the, the removing ourselves from sin completely because we know that we're going to continue to fall. What it's actually about is the spirit of repentance. Has our heart been so changed by the mercies of God and the glories of God that we desire to not sin any longer? To where when we do, are we grieved by the sin in our life? Because sin breaks God's heart. And it should break ours. When was the last time we grieved over our own sin? When's the last time we looked at our own life and just praised God for His righteousness, knowing that we could not save ourselves? Again, the true Christian will strive to live in holiness and will grieve sin and live a life of repentance. Not to earn God's favor and forgiveness and acceptance, but because He has already loved us despite our sin. Romans 5, 8, for God demonstrates his own love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died. That means on the cross of Calvary, God knew his people and he knew the sins of his people and he died anyway. See what kind of the love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God and so we are. And so what John is saying then, therefore, is anyone who is continuing to walk in the same sin, the same patterns of sin over and over and over, is simply practicing lawlessness. That is, they've exchanged the truth of God for a lie. We've believed sin's deception and, and Satan's tactics, and we're not walking in the law of God. So what is lawlessness then? If he's saying that if, if we're walking in sin, we're practicing lawlessness, well, what is lawlessness? It's just a complete disregard for the nature and the character of who God is and what God says. And it's just a deliberate rejection of God himself. It's willful acts of disobedience versus God. We become so numb that we could care less on who God is or what God thinks. And we have made ourselves idols and we want to feed those idols at whatever cost. So in essence, one who continues in sin, even in the face of being confronted with the truths of scripture is simply one that doesn't know him but there is good news verse 5 you know that he appeared in order to take away sins and in him there is no sin so even in the depths of our sin even in the the seeming tragedy of sin as it's taking over Christ came for sin so there is hope in him there is forgiveness in him there is forgiveness in the perfect love of Jesus who came and who gave himself to set his people free so that we no longer have to be bound to sin and its shackles no longer slaves to sin but we have been set free by the work of Christ 
And if this is true, then we should, as the people of God who have confessed Jesus, who understand that we have been redeemed by Jesus and Jesus alone, should crave holiness. We should want to know him more. We should want to desire to love him and to serve him with everything we have. Again, not trying to earn his favor or his love, but because we have already been loved by him. Again, he says in verse 1 of chapter 3, see what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are, and he skips down to verse 2, beloved, we are God's children now. And so we continue to live for him in his glory. Another quote from Simon Kistemacher commenting on this text he says the believer must oppose sin with all his might and strive for holiness are we proactive against sin knowing the nature of our heart knowing the natural tendencies of our heart are we preparing ourselves for battle to go against the sin that's going to come soldier does not go into battle completely unprepared If so, there's probably not very good chance that he's going to make it out. But it's very detailed and prepared and thought out. And so our lives, as we meditate on the Word of God and we devour the Word of God, we are preparing ourselves for everyday battle. We can't simply give in. Why? Because we've been set free by the work of Christ. And so what we see here is that John is making a pretty stark contrast between the one who has confessed Jesus, the the true Christian, and the unbeliever, the lost. The one who is rejecting Christ, who is practicing lawlessness. And the thing is, is that those two people should be distinguishable. If I were to live my life every moment of every day surrounded by the same people and at the end of my life those people did not know whether or not I passionately love Jesus what does that say about my belief in Jesus because I I believe that scripture clearly lays this this truth out that if we understood the depth of our sin and nature the holiness of God and we understood how Greatly our sin grieves the heart of God, yet in his great love for us and for me, he sent his son Jesus to pay the penalty that he would bear his wrath meant from my sin upon himself. Then my life can't look the same. If I understand all of those truths, and I'm not even talking about like great theological like big points right now. We're not even talking about stuff that the common person who just reads the word is going to understand. It's more stuff that like nerds like me sit down and study are going to get. But I'm talking about like just the pure spiritual milk of faith that God loves sinners and that Christ came to die for sin. It's verse 1. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. Our lives should look different. So as we see, the believer, although not perfectly, 
strives to live in holiness, whereas an unbeliever continues to live in sin without any regard for God. If there's no repentance and there's no fruit, then according to John, there's no Christ. Christians are called by God to live for God because we've been redeemed by God. And so we are to live with all of our might for the glory of God by obeying His word. He must be our highest affection. And so we can't approach sin casually. We, we can't downplay it. We can't justify it. We can't ignore it. We can't give in to the deception that sin harbors. So lastly, we see moving beyond the nature of sin to the children of God. Look at verses 7 through 10. Little children, again, the term that John has used over and over, um, this fatherly affection towards his people, this pastoral love and care towards the church. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous. As he, Jesus, is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. And the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. And by this it is evident who are the children of God. And who are the children of the devil? Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is he the one who does not love his brother. What we find in these verses that are closing out this passage is kind of John reiterating what he's already brought up in verses 4 through 6. He's reminding them of Christ's goodness and also the heinousness of sin, the the seriousness of sin. Reminding them that sin goes against the nature and the character and the holiness of God. And he's in doing so saying that the one who practices righteousness, again, not perfectly, is one who is bearing the marks of one who has been redeemed by Christ. And if we're bearing the marks of one Jesus who came to redeem us from sin, then we also have to somewhat, to the best of our ability, then mirror the fact that he came to destroy evil. And so we have to stand firm, rooted in the word of God, giving glory to God in all things, striving to live for holiness, not Again, trying to earn the favor of God because that's not possible. But we try to live for the glory of God because God has loved us despite us. Again, Romans 5 eight, For God demonstrates His own love towards us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And that's the glories of the gospel. That we have been set apart by God for God. And so... The confessing Christian does not continue to do what Christ condemns. How can we say that we're living for 
Christ if we do not condemn what Christ condemns? How can we say that we are living for Christ if we're living in a thing, in a way to go completely against the things that are in, to be in favor of the things that he condemns? Again, verse 9. No one born of God makes the practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. The child of God has a life that looks different. Now, here's where we have to be careful, okay? Um, Because working through a text like this, it's easy to focus on all the do's and don'ts rather than the good news that Christ has loved us, okay? And so where we have to be careful is, is not trying to say that we should be a people so set apart so different that we have absolutely no influence into the world around us. Because that's definitely not being faithful to what God has called us to do. We're called to be the salt of the earth, a light in light of the world, lights in the world, to be a lamp set on a lamppost so, so that all the world may see, not to glorify us and to make us look holier than thou, but to shine forth the truth that Christ is the light of the world. And so we have to understand, especially in our culture, what it means to live a life of holiness. A life set apart. A life that is different than the norm. And so in doing so, we have to simply ask ourselves the question, do I love Christ in such a way that it has changed my life? Does my life look different? Does my life reflect the goodness and the glories of God? Because our lives should reflect our true beliefs. Verse 10. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is, of not, is not of God nor is the one who does not love his brother. Are you his? Then abide in him. Rest in him. Carefully take stock of your lives. And and again, this is not meant to make you doubt your salvation. This is meant to make you take a clear and careful look. and Say, am I just simply saying that I love Jesus? Or do I actually love Jesus because he has loved me? Am I serving Christ because of what I can receive in return? Or am I serving Christ because of what I already have received in the precious blood of Christ? We have to truly listen to the word of God and let it change us. So what does our life reveal? Does it reveal the goodness and the glories of Jesus? And the last thing I want us to ponder is this. Chapter 3, verse 1 again. See what kind of the love. I have done that every time. I keep saying of the love, but it's of love. See what kind of love the Father has given to us. That we should be called children of God, and so we are. Let's pray. Father, may we be reminded of your love for us today. That we not reflect on who we are and what we've got to do better, but that we would just simply reflect on the greatness and the glories of Jesus. And in so doing, 
live a life of gratitude and thankfulness for who you are and what you've done. So may we humbly allow the Spirit to search the deepest crevices of our hearts this morning. We would be a people changed by the glories of Jesus, repentant of our sin, and set apart, living holy lives by your grace and for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.